This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. It's episode 35 of Shift Run Stop and we have Dr. Sue Black with us. Hello, Dr. Sue Black. Hello. <laughs> it's nice to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. We met at the, um, the BCS Info Pioneers launch, which was few weeks ago and actually we recorded some stuff for this podcast but not with Sue she's, no. off, she's off the record I think it was called the Information Pioneers launch oh god sorry yes it what was, did you call it? it was Info Pioneers I think that's what it is on Twitter so mm. you can let off with that one yeah no, no, if they're going to go around abbreviating it on Twitter yeah. what do they expect how dare they so I missed this uh, was it was it good and what did what, good, what yes. did you do in it? The BCS, which is the British Computer Society, decided that they wanted to promote information pioneers and so they commissioned Glasshouse to make five films. We couldn't get in everybody that we wanted to because it's very hard to choose just five people. I was desperate for there to be more than one woman on there, <laughs> so I managed to get Ada Lovelace on to the uh, <laughs> on there, so that was good. But I mean everyone agreed with me when I uh, when I brought that up, so that was cool. Um, so basically, five films were made about Ada Lovelace, Hedy Lamar, Alan Turing, uh, Clive Sinclair, and Sir Tim Berners Lee. Mm. Um, three minute films, um, just about them and what they've done. And so this was the launch in Soho um, with loads of celebrities like um, Otis Dooley and Kate Russell. Kate Russell. Everyone yeah. likes Kate Russell. Everyone likes Kate Russell. Yeah, yeah she's lovely. Seeing a lot of fanboys on the internet. Right. Who like Kate Russell. Yeah, well, I think quite a lot of people like Otis Dooley as well. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> Something for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had a really good evening. It sounded like a really good event. And the recording worked really I wasn't there, but mm. I, I heard it. It was it amazing. Good. It was like a soundproof theatre cinema oh, nice. that it was all in. So we, so we sneakily sort of grabbed people and took them in there and talked to them and LJ Rich was there as well so we oh, did that little cool. extra interview with her very cool um, so yeah it was, it was really fun and um, and th- has the winner been announced yet is what I was no I think it's the 30th when's that Wednesday Thursday mm. yeah. Wednesday later this week but by the time this goes out it will have been two weeks ago oh <laughs> no it was, it was a couple it was of weeks, weeks ago. ago I think it was announced and the winner was Alan Turing <laughs> you can do that five times now <laughs> no I think He's got forty nine percent or something. Oh, the really? next nearest one is very far below oh, that. It's yeah. likely to have it's been. It's very likely true. to have been. Sue does a lot of work with Bletchley campaigning, oh, don't you? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, where I'm sure you work there. Yeah. Yes. And what is your relationship with Bletchley? How did you come to <laughs> get involved love, in Bletchley? Love love relationship. <laughs> <laughs> they love you. you I love, love them. them. They love me. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll find out different when this goes out. <laughs> but how did you come to get involved? What was your? How, how did you kind of di- uh, discover? That? Well, first of all, I went up there probably about seven, six or seven years ago now. Um, as part, I was there because I was chair of BCS Women, which is a, a group for women in technology that I set up for the BCS. Um, in 2001 so I was there as chair of that at a meeting I walked around um, a bit and bumped into John Harper and his team who were rebuilding the bomb machine it's called the bomb machine yeah B-O-M-B-E Bombie. it doesn't okay, it doesn't up. bomb things no it's used for enco- uh, decoding the Enigma decrypts I hope I've got that right or someone will shoot me um, <laughs> And so I chatted to him about what they were doing and just thought it was amazing, really. And he said to me, why are you here? So I said, I'm here representing this group for women in technology. Um, And he said, um, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? 
So I had no idea of that from walking around then. He said there were about um, ten to 12,000 people worked here. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> you know, you just don't realise yeah, what kind of a, the scale of, of operation that went on there, um, you know, and that was kept secret for such a long time because, of course, it's, you know, it's not in our history books. Well, it's being put in now, but, it, you know, we haven't kind of grown up with it, really, I don't mm-hmm. think. And they'd only had, like, two bits of photos and half a blueprint or something to put it together mm-hmm. because everything were at the end of the war... Uh, was cut up and buried, I think. In, you know, cut up into bits and buried somewhere. Nobody knows where, for security purposes. Yeah. So I went away that time thinking, there's no mention of the women that worked at Bletchley Park. I've got to do something about this. So eventually I got some funding uh, from the BCS and uh, the UK Resource Centre for Women in Set. And uh, we had a small oral history project of the women, called the Women of Station X, where we interviewed a few women that worked there. And so that was that. So at the launch of that... Um, I didn't really know the situation that Bletchley Park was in at that time because I hadn't really talked to anybody that ran it or anything. Then at the launch, I gave my little uh, speech about the project, what I've just told you about going up there and how it all happened. And the next person to talk was um, Simon Greenish, who's the director of Bletchley Park. Um, And he was saying, basically, if we don't get some money in quickly, we're going to have to shut. So I was like aghast, you know, hearing that. I think because it's not really been in our consciousness for such a long time, and it is now, it's starting to now, but really over the last 30 years or so, people don't realise, you know, that, that it does need funding to keep it going. There's been no investment for such a long time, or there hadn't been anyway. And how has um, it run? How has it kept open? Is it a, a charity? Is it there, Yeah, National there's the Bletchley Park Trust. Okay. So there's Bletchley Park Trust that run it went away thinking okay there's something else I need to do something about here um, and I luckily got invited up there to a reception like a, a week or two later then did a full tour that time because before I'd only seen a bit of it really did a full tour and when I walked around and saw the the state of some of the huts I mean I'm sure you've seen the photos with the tarpaulin and just you know the huts some of them falling down I just got really upset I suppose and I just thought how ridiculous is this we, you know in the UK we've got something here really really special mm that 12,000 people worked here and the, and the work that they did saved millions of lives. You know, it's the birthplace of the, the computer and, and what are we, how, how are we treating it? We're just leaving it all to fall down. So I just went away again, like, really annoyed um, and, and wanted to do something about it. So I'd taken some photos when I got home because I'm head of a computer science department. I'm on an email list for all heads and professors in the, com- in the country of computer science. So when I got home, I emailed everybody with a photo and said, I went here, you know, I went to Bletchley Park, I think it's a disgrace. Um, look at the state of the hearts, we, we need to do something about this. And at the time, there was a petition on the Number 10 Downing Street website uh, to save Bletchley Park. So I urged them all to sign the petition um, and then check back. So I sent the email out thinking, oh, you know, what's everyone going to think about this? You know, I don't often sort of go ranting off on things, but I just felt I had to say something about this, and I thought they were the the best audience to kind of take it to. And so uh, I checked the petition site a few hours later to see if anybody had signed it, and there were all these, like, famous professors of computer science, well, to me anyway, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, you know, this person that, oh, dear, I'm not worthy, signed the petition because I sent the email. So I thought, okay, so it's not just me that feels this way about it other people do as well so that kind of was the beginning of my campaign to save Bletchley Park which I didn't really know that I was 
doing at the time. I, you know, I kind of fell into it, I suppose. And looking back, that was the beginning of the campaign um, because that's two years ago now and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> and has the situation changed or improved a lot in those two yeah, years? Yeah, it, it's got better. I mean, we're not there yet, um, but I think we're on the way because just thinking back two years ago, if I, you know, I quite often give talks now about my campaign, about Bletchley Park and stuff, and... Um, going into a group of reasonably geeky people, asking them if they knew what Bletchley Park was or where it was two years ago, not that many people would actually know. They'd have some vague idea that they knew the name, but they wouldn't really know what it was, whereas now that's changed quite dramatically, I think, really. So so that's really good. And I think the general public as well have, have got a bit more of an idea. You don't often get someone who's never heard of it now, whereas it was quite common two years ago. So, you know, sort of... You know, somehow over the, the two years, the word's getting out, definitely. There's definitely a higher profile. Yeah. It's a great day out as well. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> should go. And also, if you buy a ticket, it lasts all year. That's I think. right, £10. But I was interested in what you were saying about um, how how many women worked on the um, Enigma stuff and, and worked at Bletchley, just mm. in general, and how, I suppose programming and computing used to be a really female thing like when it first started and in the 40s and 50s and mm. any photos that you would see of a computer being operated would always be a woman mm. and I think it's because of the culture of typing yeah. and secretarial Probably. stuff and things like that cool. and, it was and seen men as very being boring. on the front lines you know men being at oh war. during the war yeah yeah there's that as well yeah I suppose women did all the jobs though in those days yeah well women had to fight the fires they had to, you know, mend the farms. They had yeah. to do everything. Yeah. Where, and, and all the men were, you know, kind of out in fields in another country getting shot at. So I wonder, you know, in, in a similar situation today, it's probably a good thing that it wouldn't be only women who were, who were kind of the pool of available resource to do that work because, you know, because they'd be off fighting wars as well. Anyway, no, you were making a point, Lula, what are we before my weird there? gender equality <laughs> point. <laughs> <laughs> Up with the sisterhood. Yeah, thanks. Girl power. I went to the uh, hide and seek event. At, it's called the hide and seek weekend. Actually, at the South Bank of London. Oh. And um, what's hide and seek? It's sort of a day when um, there's lots of games going on in one place, and people get together, and you can organise your own game, or you can go and um, play someone else's, and there it's kind of organized fun and it's sort of on the on the continuum of playground games or pile of games um at one end and on the other end is um sort of corporate bonding exercises where you have to put a balloon between your legs that kind of idea and or, there's or, or putting a spoon which has got a string tied to it down your t-shirt and then passing it along the line and, and then the next person has to put it through their jeans and then they pass it along to the next person. You never played this no. game? No. Uh, that's a good uh, kind of party game. something you do game. at the BBC. <laughs> You've never done it at work. But I think I've been to a party where we've played the spoon through the clothes game. That's the kind of thing and I can never or quite Or you put out. an orange under oh, your chin. Still going. <laughs> the orange under the chin thing, yes. Yeah. That's a lot like this, this That's thing. basically like pretending to kiss somebody. Yes. It's like the ice cube in the mouth thing. Oh, I haven't that. seen that one. Ah, that's, that's much more like pretending to that's kiss actually somebody. Saliva exchanges. Yes, that's the sort of thing that you do when you're a child. Um, passing. Yeah, yeah, like putting an ice cube between your lips and then passing it to the next person. In and there's like enough of the ice cube that you don't actually have to touch. Yeah, but you and sort then, of do though, don't but you? You kind of do enough to. Yeah. yeah. So. And by the end of the line, <laughs> I mean <laughs> it's pretty much gone. Sounds yeah. a bit sexy. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Oh. 
anyway. So anyway, they didn't play that at hide and seek. Was the pity in a way? It's it would have lightened yeah. up a bit. But you could have taken some ice cubes. <laughs> I could have said, right, we're having an ice cube kissy game. <laughs> <laughs> Gather round. Um, so what games did you play if you didn't play I bloody ice cube kissing? I didn't really play. Oh well. I didn't really play anything because A, I, I arrived too late and B, I, obviously, as we possibly mentioned, I'm a bit injured at the moment with my foot and it was all like arranged over a series of floors. But um, and, and a bit shy. And a bit shy as well, yeah. And, and I just kind of looked around and went, do I really want to really do that? Do I want to blindfold myself and crawl along the floor? Or I could just sort of stand here and look at my phone. Hang on, this uh, spoon's been in the fridge. What's going on with this game? <laughs> So, uh, but one of the things that that was quite interesting that they were doing was um, a poetry reading, uh, which was actually recording. This chap, Ross Sutherland, who writes poems about video games, I think, sometimes as well, has written a poem of 26 lines, and I'm just holding the brochure here. Each line has been translated into a different language before the game begins. And the idea is that you phone this translation hotline if you can translate any of the lines and leave a message on their answer phone of you saying in English what you think the line translates as. And obviously there's that sort of Google Babelfish-style hilarious misinterpretation of certain words and being too literal or being too creative with it and things like that. So it's very subjective, as translation always is, which I think is interesting in its own way. Played a recording of everybody's answer phone messages in order. So you got all the lines of everybody's different voices. The record, Some of the recording quality was quite poor on some of the answer phone messages that's so the trouble with telephones isn't it yeah exactly yeah so you can always hear what they were saying maybe um, some of them were using iPhones and they were holding it wrong oh yeah maybe maybe they were just using iPhones and the battery had died or the reception was really bad but it was interesting and um, afterwards they played a recording of the poet himself playing the English version which oh. actually made sense unlike <laughs> the, uh, the weird recording patchwork version um, and I thought it was an interesting idea. And, uh, oh, yeah, the competition element is that the person who can translate the most languages, because once again, every line is in a different language, um, wins some theatre tokens. And uh, I think the guy that won had done managed to translate eight different languages. Wow. And these are the languages of London? Yeah, so it's supposed to be about um, how London is now so multicultural that we have many languages, and I suppose these are supposed to be the most spoken and Alex said that German was the um, the one that was most readily translated, so maybe that's the language most people speak. So I suppose what is interesting about this, and we were talking about off mic earlier, is, um, you know, in what sense is it a game? Is anything a game if you just say, try this, and the person who does the most wins? We'll give them a prize. Yeah. Yeah, it feels more like a competition to me. Yes. Um, What's the difference between a game and a competition, Rue? That's a good question. Mm. I wish I was... Uh, studied in the arts of what is a game and what is a, a pervasive game and what is a... Mm. So I think we, sh- we need to get um, somebody like, oh, I don't know, Ivo Gormley, who's oh. made films about this. We need to get him on to front stop. Stuff. Let's yeah. ask him. Yes, let's get him in. <laughs> in, be- in two weeks' time. I want to take you back to your, your childhood when you were buying textbooks <laughs> for fun. Yeah. Um, what other symptoms of geekiness did you experience also what was your first computer that's a good question well that's embarrassing that one but um, the the other symptoms of geekiness were probably that I didn't have any friends (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I've made up for it now. Yeah. You've become all outgoing. <laughs> yeah, and everything. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, I've gone from like sort of hiding in the corner. Yeah, Sue can um, make eye contact. Yeah, it's very peculiar. I've practiced that long and hard. <laughs> yeah, she's better than us. Actually. <laughs> it's sort of drifting off out the window. They're not joking. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just really shy and liked my math books and didn't have many friends and wanted to get high marks on math tests at school and. Yeah. What about, what about toys? Science, did, you science, have, science, did you have toys. geeky toys? Because I was really obsessed with Lego. Well, I was a girl, right, and I still different. am, kind of, yeah. a grown-up girl. Um, and in those days, sounds like Victorian times, it wasn't quite that long ago, um, it, it was more the thing to buy girls certain toys and boys mm. other toys. So my brother had Lego and Meccano, and, and I played with my brother's Lego when I could. Uh, and, you know, I got given things to do with knitting and sewing but you know I can do both now yeah. I can knit and sew and make Lego things so uh, so that's cool um, but I, you know, I was always desperate for my own Meccano and I didn't have any so it's kind of a I don't know probably got some um, psychological issues around that somewhere because <laughs> <laughs> when I see it in the shops I think oh, Meccano <laughs> yeah. but I've not bought myself any because I think if I got it would I, well maybe I would do something with it I don't know you could do all sorts I had a friend who made uh, a camera like a webcam mount out of Meccano oh, really? and servos it was all very fancy that's very, very cool yeah. oh yeah robots and stuff yeah, mm. yeah so maybe I should I should I should well and Lego as well because there's Mindstorms yeah yes yeah, so I really want one of those but I haven't splashed out because it's quite expensive if you want to get a present for <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so anybody wants to buy me a present now we know what she likes for the, for the important work she's done at Bletchley and <laughs> yeah. haven't known how to thank her <laughs> You must have a department that needs to buy some mindstorms, surely. Yeah, I'm going to create one when I go back. Yeah. <laughs> do you get to do much um, making of things in your in your daily work, or is it all sort of abstract? It's all sort of admin, more than abstract. Admin, oh. Yeah, being a manager. Yeah. Once you're head of, does that mean you're well, responsible? Well, once you've proved yourself in a technical field, they take you straight off that and put you into admin. That's, no, I mean that's irritating. <laughs> no, it's my fault because you know I applied for the job and went for it, didn't I? So. Uh, yeah, so no, I don't really do hardly any technical stuff anymore apart from bits of research that I do with people, really. And that's not, I don't do very much in a very techie field anymore just because I think you lose the skills a bit, really. I mean, I, I think most people probably find you the same when, when you, you know, like coding. I couldn't, mm. you know, I can look at code, but I couldn't sit down and write very much at all anymore. Whereas, you know, for my PhD, I wrote a prototype tool which was I don't know 2,000 lines of C so I could do it but, but I can't do it now but when you talk about losing those skills mm. do you think that's losing them with lack of practice rather than with yeah. you know it, I don't Old want to talk about age but no well <laughs> I feel quite sensitive talking about it really but you know it's rust and lack of use isn't it yeah no it's just not doing it yeah. it's like anything I mean if you I don't know if I didn't drive a car for, for 15 years I wouldn't find it very easy when I got in to drive a car again I'm yeah. sure yeah there are a lot of programmers now who were around, I suppose, for the first wave of big computer programming stuff that was going on maybe in the 60s, and they're still academics, and they're still kept rooms at universities, and a lot of them are women. And you go to universities, and there are a lot of really old, grey-haired, doddery, like, in their 80s, women wandering around with these little rooms, like at Cambridge at the Computer Lab. There's loads of women who are, and, you know, there's, there's some natural wastage going on there, which is a shame. But... They were, they were, the, they were the, the programmers of the day. Mm. Do you know the story about Steve Shirley? 
don't think so. Yeah. No, okay, well, that's a really good one. Steve Shirley was, um, I think she was like a Hungarian Jewish refugee, came to England when she was about six mm. without her parents, so she came here on her own. Um, and uh, she, I can't remember exactly what happened um, through her early life, but she built up a company um, called F International. Um, and she employed lots of women working at home who had kids. Um, so they were, and they were programming for her company, mm-hmm. which I think is, is uh, an amazing thing to have done at that time. Um, but the reason she's called Steve Shirley rather than her name's Stephanie Dames now, Dame Stephanie Shirley. Um, the reason she's called Steve Shirley is because she found that when she was sending her CV in uh, to places or, or anything with her name on it, she just wouldn't get any credence from anybody and it wasn't until she changed mm. Stephanie to Steve that anything actually happened and she got anywhere so you know I mean we think today that, that things are on as they should be in terms of equality but we've come a very long way we've yeah. come a very long way I'm still surprised when I find out that there are women doing these things mm. and I shouldn't be especially women women my generation really and I sort of recently got back in touch with some people that I knew at school and they're all and they're all, all girls and they're all computer scientists now it's amazing oh, really? yeah and well, I think well really cool. there was sort of some time in my childhood I think where I could have gone either way and I sort of and I decided to go into the arts area and I was all my friends all through school were amazingly geeky and mm. we just always used to go around each other's houses and play on our computers and that was like our idea of a fun afternoon was yeah. like come around and play golden axe but uh, and then later to find out that they'd gone off and done a computer science degree and they were doing and that was all that they wanted to do and they're really and they're really into it and it doesn't mean that they're boring or like a boy or anything else yeah. it's just that that's what they were always good at and it was the natural course and they presumably didn't have any obstacles to it but it still surprises me and I still think oh god yeah there are because in our sort of circles I suppose it's still mainly men that you come across mm. and you still expect to find men. So when I was at university the vast majority of people on my computer science course were, were blokes yeah. rather than women. I don't think that was because they were being excluded I think mm. the intake was just naturally much more male oriented. I don't know whether that's still the case now, whether it's improving, but it was always the case that they always struggled to recruit evenly, even though they would have desperately loved to. Because mm. um, at school, you didn't find that. Oh, I, I still don't know why, really, but you know, girls yeah. just weren't being sucked into that kind of excitement of oh, I really want to do math, like, yeah. like you. I don't, you know, the, the kind of loving maths and yeah. sciencey subjects still yeah. seems quite quite rare for girls and. I don't know why that should yeah, be. Is so, it about I mean, the teachers? Is it nature or nurture? I, d- mm. I really don't know. I mean, having been in the area, or sort of interested in the women in computing thing for a long time, I still don't really know the answers. I mean, I feel like I should, but I don't really. Um, and I guess the sort of the people I meet, a skewed kind of group of people, really, which is, you know, I mean, because I set up a network for women in computing, mm. which now has, you know, over a thousand women members, and I know, you know, lots of them reasonably well. Certain lots of my friends are women in computing, so... Mm. You know, yeah, you I, I can't that. tell outside that's you know that sort of circle really whether things have got better or yeah whether it's nature or nurture. It, I mean, I'd like most things, it's probably a combination really. You know, but I think most things like that, it's not very, it's not a very straightforward thing. So yes, well, so how about a cooling drink? It sounds like either either a kind of boring noise or someone weeing into a cup. Which is it, listeners? You'll have to guess. 
Welcome, welcome, listeners. And we're, we're just we're just drinking your health with Mark Suspenser's A Taste of Spain, non-alcoholic quote sangria unquote <laughs> juice drink. Oh, it's cinnamony. Mm. Very cinnamony. Yeah, I don't remember sangria having cinnamon in it. Well, it doesn't have alcohol in it, so perhaps that's covering up for. <laughs> This is an exciting new, uh, new theme uh, for this session of snack time. But um, Mark Suspensers have, quote, sangria. They also have a quote of mojito. And uh, I can't remember the other one. It's probably a pina colada, again, mm. in quotes. What do you make of the sangria? It's quite nice. I, I don't know. I think it's got a bit too much cinnamon in. But everything we've had on this programme that's had cinnamon in has been too has cinnamon. Has too cinnamon. <laughs> yeah. that, that's um, is it a recurring theme. cinnamon that you only need a tiny bit? Maybe you just don't like cinnamon. Maybe, maybe that's it. You're like the princess maybe, and the pig, maybe I'm but with cinnamon. You look like oh, or like a shark, and that you can detect cinnamon in <laughs> one part per ten billion. I like the princess thing better than the, the <laughs> What I've been looking out for is other things that you can do with apples, because I'm sure apples will be in season soon. So, um, uh, regular listeners will, will know, of course, uh, will have enjoyed some of our, our previous experiments with the fruity ciders. I liked that. Yeah. We, we are quite keen on fruity, alcoholic drinks on this podcast. I know, quite the, a few. for the ladies. And, um, <laughs> and Rue. And Rue even advocated putting uh, vodka in the previous one. I should emphasise, this is alcoholic. This is a, this is a proper 4% alcoholic. It doesn't look like it looks less alcoholic than the, uh, the, the mocktail we were just enjoying. Nice purpley bottle. I think we discussed this on the show previously, but uh, this is the, the Brothers Tutti Fruity Pear Cider. The, uh, the other one we, we, we tried has a, had a kind of like summer berries uh, thing to it. I'm, I'm not sure if that was mm. that was from the Brothers range. So, we're, in fact, I'll pull some out and then we can... Um... Looks like Vimto. It's got, it's got, <laughs> it's got, it's got quite, quite a purplish uh, froth on top. Ooh. Mm, it tastes like cream. Like, oh, it's creamy. It's it tastes got... like, no, but like body lotion or something. It tastes like walking past a branch of lush. And going, <laughs> yes. oh, I wish I could eat all of that in one go. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. It's pear cider. Let's have a look at the tutti fruity pear cider. It says, last year, festival goers started to mix our pear, strawberry, lemon and toffee apple ciders together to make it tutti fruity. This is, you know, if I, if I was the brothers company, I would not be proud of this. People going, oh, for heaven's sake. Surely if we mix them together, they could cancel each other out or something. Here's the luxury version with some extra passion fruit and blackberries in as well. Enjoy! So that's why the flavour's so confused, because it's every flavour known to man. An extra passion fruit. Yeah, what it actually like, what it actually reminds me of is eating opal fruits. Not, not any particular flavour of opal fruits, just the generic flavour of opal fruits. Eating just them all at once. Mm. It's an opal fruit smoothie. Yeah, it's a bit, I think it's a bit That's strong, quite it's sweet, a bit much. Yeah, I think. It's a bit of, are we just getting old? Is this, it's like everything's like, oh, it's a bit too sweet. This tastes like a festival going made too it. Flavor in it. People quite often ask me, why, why aren't there enough women in computing? Mm. And I think confidence actually mm. is a really big thing. Mm. I know what it's like to try and force yourself to be confident mm. it takes time but you can do it yeah you know i've gone from being someone who, who couldn't talk to two people at the same time at all i just couldn't do it so if i was in a group of three people i just couldn't say you anything yeah like i'm now <laughs> <laughs> i'm having a flashback <laughs> no i really i really couldn't join in the conversation unless they actually asked me what i thought that was the only way i'd be able to join in because otherwise my brain would be going i'm just crazy and how did you get over that was it a conscious choice yeah 
Yeah, I just thought my life's going to be terrible if yeah. I get, if I can never have conversation with one person at a time. I'm going to have a rubbish life. Mm. It sounds quite. I don't know if it sounds silly or dramatic or what, but I just came to the conclusion probably when I was mid twenties, I suppose, mm. that that I had to do something about it. And the, I mean, the great thing for me now is looking back and seeing that well, I made that little step, mm. and then you know, then I made another one and another one. And if you just keep going. You end up with red hair. Academia is quite a nice environment for nurturing that kind of confidence in shy people as well, because you do get to spend a lot of time on your own if you want to, but then you're constantly being forced to go and do a presentation or go teach or something awful like that. (laughs) Something wonderful (laughs) like that. Wonderful teaching. One very controversial question I'd like to put to you, Sue, is where you stand on um, what I think is termed positive discrimination mm. uh, kind of forcing institutions to take on maybe an, you know, an equal number of, of women as men onto technical courses in mm. order to kind of force that balance, is that something that you would like to see happen um, or, or do you think there are other ways of dealing with it um, I've actually changed my views on this as I've got older, when I was younger I just thought positive discrimination was completely wrong we shouldn't do it because we're all equal and you know, we we should all kind of try and get along, and I kind of it was a bit of a hippie time, I suppose. So that kind of is reflected in that. But um, but the older I get, the more I think if we don't take some bit more dramatic steps at some point, it's going to take hundreds of years. You know, do we want to wait hundreds of years for all this to happen? So actually, I'm in favour. I don't mean. Um, of any positive discrimination but I think used sort of judiciously and wisely then I think positive discrimination definitely has its place and so you know I think we should experiment with it a bit I mean have a look at what other countries other areas have have done and uh, look at the results of that and see if there's anything we can use I think you know I think that's definitely something we should think about Mm. But at the moment, you don't have a view on you know, whether it would be appropriate for university admissions, say. Because I'm just wondering if, if at that stage it's already too late, you know, if, if mm. there's something kind of at A-levels or before where... where yeah, well, I think, it, I, mean, I think the thing with this is it, it's, it's all the way through from when kids are very small, I think, from toys, the toys that they get as kids, mm. you know, all the sort of pink stuff and all the blue stuff... Um, there's, you know, as soon as they're out, kids are out socialising. Well, there's the family at home, so there might be, you know, various views in your family at home which either are or aren't discriminatory. Then you go out into society, out to school, so you've got all these views from, from different groups of people. And, you know, then, then you've got the curriculum that you've got at school, so obviously I don't think that's uh, discriminatory, but uh, have you met Dame Wendy Hall? I remember talking to her and, and she thinks that the introduction of computers into schools with this sort of one PC in every classroom w- was the worst thing that could ever happen for, <laughs> for girls and computing because it was just one computer in each classroom. Yeah. So the boys being more bolshy mm. got the computer. It definitely happened in the school. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah so, and the girls were pushed out, whereas before it was quite equal. Mm. Well, it, I, mean, I suppose it wasn't equal, but in terms of gender, it would have been quite equal. You know, that was a bad thing to do, and it's, yeah. that's awful, isn't it? Because you think it's a wonderful thing to do to put mm. computers into mm. schools. I think she's probably right. That had a big effect there. That's really interesting, that we would have needed lots rather than just one, and maybe we're suffering as a generation Mm. from that. Well, I remember um, the computer in the library, and we had very few computers at the school um, that I went to 
when I was there anyway, I'm sure there are oodles of them in there now, uh, but you know, the two computers that you had access to in the library, yeah, you had to book them at lunchtime in order to use them, and it was mm. the same three geeks who were there, and they were all boys, and there was no, <laughs> I was one of them. Um, and yeah, that, that wasn't... Contemporary sort of health and safety wisdom is that you should alternate at alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks, right. assuming you're in a condition where you can even tell which is which anymore. <laughs> well, you're confusing us with this fake sangria. Uh, I know. Well, like, I'm following, following on from the fake sangria, what should I find in, uh, in cyber candy wow. but, uh, but Suntory's uh, Lucky Cider? Wow, and uh, you know, and it's it's got a it's it's got a dolphin talking. About it. I don't know if the dolphin. I can't imagine the dolphin is considered a lucky uh, animal. I think in uh... in, in Japan, uh, where I assume this is from. I think that lucky cider is a Japanese expression, meaning non-alcoholic cider. Or oh, are you sure? Well, it, <laughs> who cares? Uh, no, I wanted to have alcohol. In it. Oh, it's completely clear. Oh, that's exciting. It's the tab clear of cider. Um, so lucky cider. It smells like somebody's put refreshers in some oh. lemonade. <laughs> it really does. This is hard to slip. Oh. That's quite peculiar. Yeah, because it does list the ingredients as glucose syrup, sugar, flavouring <laughs> and citric acid. And one thing I'm not spotting in there is apple. <laughs> and yeah, so lucky cider. I mean, I mean, it might be it might be apple flavouring, but I'm not picking that up. It's it's a, it's it's very mild, isn't it? I'm trying to imagine a, a situation in which I would think of this as being lucky cider. I think this is quite unlucky in almost every way. It's, uh, oh, it's I mean, it's it's the purest cider I've ever drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like fizzy, sugary yeah, It's like Mountain Dew, but with less flavour. You remember um, when you were young, you used to go down the corner shop for a big bottle of lemonade, and the lid was sort of like a screwed-on metal cap thing, and it was never never very fizzy, and it was never very tasty. It's just like that. It's it's, It's like cheap lemonade from a glass bottle with a metal lid. That doesn't, yeah, that doesn't taste of lemons or indeed any fruit. So, there we go. If you've you've ever been tempted by the lucky cider... Are, are like in, in cyber candy. Uh, I hope I hope that's that's correct. I, look, I can't even tell if that's a warning symbol or, or just or just an encouragement to recycle it. Um, <laughs> how how do we top those? <laughs> like a particularly sort of strange and bland lucky cider. Fortunately, oh, there's more. I thought like what what are the what are, like you know like I said, brothers have done a um, a lemon cider, a toffee apple cider. We've had loads of court. Loads of traditional summer berries. What's the fruit that no one's added to cider so far? It's the ingenious, the ingenious of Morrison's. No, don't give, don't give them ideas. Morrison's has a new season cider with natural orange flavour. Mm. Oh, thank goodness. That oh, might yeah. be nice. This has got a smell to oh, it. God. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Sharp. No, that's like a cleaning product. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It really is. It's like oh. it's like citrus flash. Well, you know when you accidentally leave some um, washing up liquid in a cup and then you make a drink with oh. the washing up liquid. Sheesh. I think I'd get used to it though. Wait, it's uh, like whiskey or something. It's the really sharp smell before it even yeah. gets your mouth. You have the problem, to, it? You have to kind of hold your nose. Maybe we should try heating it up. Persevere. That that's uh, <laughs> that's your answer for everything, isn't it, Rose? Um. <laughs> Just to like body temperature. Mm. Just to mouth like temperature. Just yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, it is. It's got a very sharp oh, aftertaste, very hasn't chemical, it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, perhaps this isn't. We've uh, we've 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 covered it at the end of a whole load of like quite potentially oversweetened uh, cider drinks. But yeah, this is this is like this is like cider that you've uh, you know, that I, you've made in a still yeah. <laughs> at home and then thrown some oranges in by mistake. Yes. You could clean your bathroom with it, I think. Perhaps there's a reason why no one's done uh, uh, an orange cider before. The um, the, <laughs> the 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 lemon cider um, tastes. The lemon cider doesn't taste of apples at all. It just tastes of lemon. It tastes like those alcoholic lemonades that kicked off the whole uh, Alco Pops ready to drink. Hooper's hooch. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I remember that fondly. But this is very much apple with some orange thrown in superfluously. I know. It's I don't like it. <laughs> well, some things to look out for there and potentially avoid. If it wasn't for the cinnamon. Yeah. No, yeah. I quite liked that. Would you yeah. try the sangria again? Sangria I think was I, good, it yeah. was actually quite nice. Although um, I'd mix the sangria with lucky cider. Mm. I wouldn't have recognised that. That's it. what I'm going to be doing now. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, a bit of sangria. Why don't we just mix all of them together? Juicy, <laughs> <laughs> fruity square. See if we can create the ultimate cocktail. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That was lovely. Anytime. Oh, dear. I feel a bit woozy now. <laughs> <laughs> So Sue um, knows a photographer who is doing a project at the moment to take pictures of people with their Twitter followers. All of them. Um, as many as they want or can get in the time Ooh. to come to this thing. And Sue's got a lot of Twitter Sue's followers. Sue's got thousands. She's really popular. Yeah. And so I went to this studio and there were um, probably 12 or 15 other people that also know her off Twitter. And we all had to... And his, his plan is to um, recreate some sort of iconic photo from... 60s I think and I should really know what the photo was but I hadn't heard of it is it a tennis player (laughs) (laughs) no that'd be great wouldn't it but the studio was so small and the screen that we had to work in front of because this is how we work in studios you wouldn't know really but when we have our photos not all of us have been been (laughs) shot for wired um, you have to stand in front of a massive white screen which oh, des- descended from the ceiling of these enormous studios and they only had a tiny amount of space to do this so they would take us up there like two or three at a time and get us to stand next to each other and then they're going to stitch all the pictures together so oh, it looks like okay. an enormous line using magic of technology exactly very cool and so should, yeah. with the studio was it a bit like that episode of the IT crowd maybe the last episode of the first series when he has to make the calendar the geek calendar. <laughs> was it a bit like that it was a bit like that I mean it wasn't it wasn't in any way uh, salacious or um intended to be suggestive in any way but we were supposed to look quite serious and like a bit like a band or something right with our faces and stuff and they seem very pleased with the pictures so you will see it hopefully maybe this Sunday I don't know I don't know how things work it's Sunday time so there might be a paywall around it it ceased to exist for me I know shocking isn't it somebody's going to have to uh, have to leech it out from inside the paywall and bring it out here in the free world Yes, someone needs to liberate one and uh, send it back in to free all the others somehow. That's how this works. Put it on TwitPic. Uh, Yeah, all we need is a photocopier and one copy of the Sunday Times. We we can bring this whole thing down. If we got a photocopier, we could sell the physical artefact. Ah, yeah. For money. Is that illegal? You allowed it? No, obviously not. (laughs) There's a thing called copyright. Photocopy newspapers. <laughs> Sell them for money. I get really annoyed at the people who um, stand outside uh, tube stations and say, Sometimes, because they're selling me the Sun and the Times, uh, they're not giving these away. They yeah. want money for them. Yeah. If you're going to give things away, then okay, fair enough. You can be quite thrusty. Uh-huh, uh, you know, right, I'll, I'll yeah. ignore you, but yeah. you can thrust. 
But if you're going to stand there shouting in order to kind of like hawk your wares, mm. oh, I don't know. Yeah, what is this Victorian Britain? Yeah. You can't just stand there shouting what you're, what you're trying to sell. That's how society works. The names of your newspapers. Yeah. If I wanted to read your news, I'd go online and I'd get frustrated at not being able to see it for free. If I wanted to read your news, I'd go on the internet. Rue, you were telling me that when you were a child, you experienced the opposite thing to what Sue did, that you actually wanted girls' toys and weren't allowed them. Well, I think it's very sexist of you to label them girls' toys. But I wanted... Oh, is it me that's labelled them girls' toys? You just did. Oh. Yeah, I, I didn't okay. use the word girls' toys. I said I wanted a twin pram and an ironing board. <laughs> and if you think that those are girls' toys, then you share the same prejudice as my father. <laughs> who wouldn't let me have a twin pram or an ironing board, insisted instead that I had a toolkit, like a woodworking kit for, right. for sawing and hammering and that kind of thing. Did that you thing. use your woodworking kit to make an ironing board? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the oh, ultimate. I really should have done. <laughs> uh, I did use the woodworking kit and I became a manly man as a result. I think it's possible that, that boys get, uh, get the rough end of the, mm. the deal from their own point of view anyway, just yeah. as much as girls do around, around childhood toys. I would have loved a Barbie. Aww. Some dolls. It's easier for girls to ask for more unisex toys or more conventionally boy-like toys and it even was when we were kids. And I think that, it's yeah, I think as a boy it would have been... Eyebrows would have been raised well, if you had said, yes, I, I want dolls. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a name, there's a term for <laughs> girls who want boys' toys and we call them... Tomboys. Tomboys. Yeah. Whereas a boy who wants girls' toys, we call them mm. gay. <laughs> Which is strange, isn't it? Like, yeah. what's the equivalent? So, uh, yeah, welcome new listeners. You may already have noticed that we're the only podcast available on C90 cassette tape. Yes. Uh, so you should avail yourself of that opportunity. There are other podcasts available on C60. No, there aren't. <laughs> there should be. <laughs> well, maybe we should take over that area too, Ooh. just in case someone... You'd have a long edit and a short edit. Hey. Sounds like too much work. Yeah, it does. We've erected a paywall around the notion of uh, physical media, and uh, we'll record an episode of Shiffer and Stop onto cassette for you. Or, yeah. or if you want two episodes, double-sided tapes are available. Yeah. Uh, go to shifferandstop.co.uk slash buy dash tapes. Okay, so that trips if, off you, the tongue. if you want it, does. I'm glad we went with that. <laughs> if you want to buy a, a tape of the Danny episode... But, you know, it's all about nostalgia and the olden days and stuff. Yeah. It seems appropriate. And you have some way of playing a cassette, or even if you don't, then, uh, you know, three quid, isn't it? Three quid for a Three quid for a single. Five quid for a double. Can't say fairer than that. Dr. Sue Black, thank you for coming to Chevron Stop. It's very nice to meet you. You're very welcome, I've enjoyed it. And we're definitely going to have to take that, that day trip to Bletchley Park with our recorder that we've talked about. Goodbye! You've been listening to Shift Run Stop. Visit the website shiftrunstop.co.uk.